I didn't simply feel entitled to use my Dharma name. And I love my Dharma name, you know, so it's not that I want to annihilate it from existence, but I don't want to feel like, well, I can use that if I want to without consequence. That may be, me using that may very well cause someone pain. It may very well cause someone Japanese or Japanese American to at least be like, what are you doing? Why are you calling yourself something Japanese? And, And that could cause harm. So I use I use the name somewhat, and I have the consciousness there. And if I receive the feedback that's harmful, um, I'm open to doing that because, and I feel like that's how I can take care. You know, it's not just about the names; it's about on every level of ritual and practice and ceremony and forms. And you know, do we chant in Japanese or English? Dojin Sarah Emerson began practicing Zen in 1996. She lived and trained at Tassajara Zen Mountain Center and other sites of the San Francisco Zen Center from 1997 to 2007. She received Dharma transmission from Abbot Kanjan Galen Godwin of the Houston Zen Center in 2015. She has a master's degree in counseling psychology from the California Institute of Integral Studies. She experiences Bodhisattva Zen practice as uniquely supportive to inquiring into challenging and transforming systems of oppression, and is committed to centering anti-racism work within the practice. Sarah has also worked for many years in grief support and specializes in ceremonies for child loss. Currently, Sarah and her partner, Charlie Corn Bacorny, serve as head priests at the Stone Creek Zen Center, which was founded by Jisha Warner. You are listening to Sit, Breathe, Bow, a podcast for practitioners. Each week, leading Buddhist teachers share life experiences and insights to help guide your meditation practice as well as your life off of the cushion. I'm your host, Ian White-Marr. This podcast is sponsored by the Kwanam Online Sangha, a virtual Zen practice community of the International Kwanam School of Zen. Members of the Online Sangha meditate together, study with teachers, and participate in workshops and courses to develop their practice. Listeners of this podcast are invited to try a free month of training, which includes live Q&A interviews with Zen teachers, discounts on webinars and online classes, and access to a private community where students can discuss their practice and receive guidance. To access your free month of training, simply visit quantumzenonline.org and click on the free trial membership button on the homepage. Sarah, you and I grew up not all that far from each other, maybe about an hour or so. New England, good New England people. <laughs> and uh, we both found our way into Zen practice. And uh, I think you told me I had end of the interview that you grew up Catholic or you went to Catholic school maybe. And I'm, I'm curious about how you found your way into this tradition or what, what the calling was that, that really spoke to you. Uh, in terms of Zen practice, or maybe even was a different type of Buddhism that that got you started. My my life as a Catholic was interesting because my parents my parents were pretty young when they had us. I grew up in in Newton, Massachusetts, and but I had a lot of questions <laughs> as a little person. And both my parents were raised Catholic, but they had kind of set it aside and. I think didn't really, I think they were into an idea that weren't, they weren't going to indoctrinate us, but I had so many questions and they were 
young and busy and uh they they were like well maybe we should bring her to church <laughs> so i remember i the first time i went to church that i remember was when i was 7 mm. uh with the idea that i would get some answers there um and i and i did i didn't um and then and then I, as you mentioned i went to catholic school from 7th through 12th grade and and all of that um i feel is foundational to my life in zen even though it wasn't explicitly so um but i i think i was a person that that um has a lot of um yeah i just i wanted to understand like what are we doing here and what is this and what happens and and for me, a lot of what I was being offered in the church was um, pretty unsatisfying. <laughs> like, <laughs> the idea that women couldn't be priests, first of all, really bugged the heck out of me and uh, didn't make any sense to me at all. Um, actually, I couldn't really understand why it was celibate people that would lead congregations. I was like, well, they, but they don't know what's happening for everybody over here that have all these babies. And my congregation was full of people with lots of babies. And, um, all, although there was lots of kindness. Um, yeah, I, I think, and, and my school, which was a sacred heart school was actually, I like to tell people this, like it was amazingly progressive in certain ways, um, that I think people, uh, the, uh, the image of Catholic school is often pretty restricted. And I was taught by both lay teachers and nuns who were, uh, extremely progressive in many, many ways. And so by the time I was a senior in high school, I was learning liberation and feminist theology, which uh, was pretty awesome. <laughs> um, I got to give a homily in our church, which I, I was also, a <laughs> I was an altar quote boy because uh, our church was progressive enough to let girls be altar servers. So I was, uh, you know, I was, I was already moving toward like incense, and ceremony and form and a lot of people who are formerly catholic love zen because it has lots of form and it feels familiar yeah um but how i actually came to zen practice was um like many uh, white convert american buddhists um through pain and suffering uh, my mom died when i was 22 just at the end of college and you know, uh, the way I can see it now, it's like my world ended. I, I, that wasn't supposed to be possible. She was only 47. And, and uh, now I can also see too, like I, my, I finished college, my mom died. My family kind of, we're still close, but kind of disintegrated in its form. I was pretty uh, adrift, um, not very supported in, in my grief. I, again, like coming from New England, I came from a culture that was like, oh, you know, you grieve and you have your funeral and then you're good, you know, or you, or it's better to not talk yeah, about it. There's wood to stack. What's that? There's wood to stack. There's wood to stack. <laughs> right. Like, and actually that's, and that's the way out, right? Like get a job, do a thing, get re-engaged with life. Yeah. Um, feelings definitely were not uh, supported as a way to, to go. <laughs> And so I was, I was searching and, and I, I ended up, it, it was a, I moved to Chicago with a boyfriend and then we broke up and I moved to San Francisco, <clears throat> kind of just moving as far away as I could from my family. I think just running away from my pain and a boyfriend in college had given me Zen Mind Beginner's Mind. And one day I happened to notice San Francisco Zen Center. Like I saw the sign. It was kind of a small sign at the time. And I went there. 
And, and then I heard things like birth and death is the great matter and beings are numberless and I vow to save them. And, and all of those things, I think talking about death and impermanence um, and having unattainable vows that all, it met something in me that nothing else did. You know, I think that was like, oh, first of all, we can talk about death and, and impermanence and and that's the great matter, like great, okay. <laughs> um, yeah, so that that's how I started practicing with the San Francisco Zen Center, and and it took a while. It's not a it's, Zen centers often are. <laughs> I know now because I lived at them for many years. That you know, your the attempt is to kind of give people space and or something. Um, they're full of introverted people for one thing. That's kind of challenging. And, and, uh, but they're yeah. not often the most welcoming places, right? People are, if, if you're, <laughs> people, the, the social cues are funny. People are keeping their eyes down and they're not making small talk. And, um, but that suited me actually. <laughs> I was a New Englander, you know, it's like, yeah, all right, phew, I don't have to process things. We'll just sit here and look at this wall. Yeah. Well, I think also when people come to, places like I've only been to the San Francisco Zen Center once but you know living here uh Cambridge Zen Center you know when they people come in from the outside it's always like oh wow this is such a wild place but when you live here you live within the sort of chaos of it all <laughs> which is you know good but also like you have a lot of new people always in your space and mm -hmm. some of them yeah some of them come back and a lot of them don't. Mm -hmm. And so it's hard to invest all the time in every single new person that comes in the door. And yet that is a little bit of what we're called to do. Yeah. Yeah. You know, a little bit. It's, it's, it's such an interesting, yeah. Anyways, it's, a, it's such a curious life to live in these things. Yeah. To live in residence in a, and there's some people come in with so much, um, often with lots of pain, you know, <laughs> and, and then with lots of projection, you know, yeah. um, that everybody there is holy or perfect or, uh, right. Not chaotic. Certainly people don't come to a Zen center and be right. like, Oh, that's a swirl of chaos. I think I'll join in there. Yeah. Right. Um, but it, yeah, you're right. That, and so, and yeah, so being conscious of how, uh, um, we we do though at at any place that I think is called a Zen center or a practice center, there's that responsibility to know like it's a gate, you know. Um, and and there's so many conditions. I mean, I think you know I can point to the grief in my life and my confusion and seeking, but and there are conditions way beyond our knowing that bring us to seek out a practice place, you know, and um, and there are outflows for that from that that are way beyond our knowing. So, yeah, it, it's good to. I'm just for myself now remembering, like, oh yeah, it's good to remember <laughs> uh, the quality with which we meet anyone that comes through the door is really impactful, you know, and and can kind of make or break it for people in terms of really finding their way into the Dharma. Yeah, and or even finding their way out. I you know I've met people who have come here for a while and. 
I, I sometimes I worry. I see them and leave, and they're angry for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. It could be you know projection, all all the things that they're carrying as well. But they're also, I think, sometimes it's a little bit of oh, we didn't care for you as best as we might have. Mm-hmm. Which isn't. I'm not trying to condemn the place in any way. It's just like I think we all deal with that. I deal with that as a minister in the congregations that I served and stuff like yeah. that. It's just like this fragile human life and existence mm-hmm. yeah um, yeah and to and to kind of know even though it could feel every day right when you live there it's a it's a day-to-day thing that new people come in and it's like yeah you can never know what seed that sows you know right. so even for me in in my life now at stone creek zen center people come and they're if they don't come back i i don't feel discouraged about that actually i feel like well if we've sowed a good seed, um, maybe it'll take a couple of lifetimes, you know? <laughs> or maybe later in their life, or maybe I, there's a crisis, or, or or maybe it wasn't for them, or maybe there's another path that's going to meet their needs more. Uh, but it matters. I think that piece that it matters. Yeah, one hundred percent. Yeah, it's funny. I don't know why I have so much energy around this, but I, I do right now. It's interesting just to feel it within my body about like mm-hmm. sort of the precious responsibility of those people who walk through the door. Yeah. Looking like the world is so hungry for, well, I think just the world feels so isolated. And those of us, I mean, including those of us who've decided to like <laughs> wear these robes and like we've come because there's something that is unresolved mm. and we're looking for resolution. Yeah, if if that's how we come to practice, you know, right. And right. for many people in the U.S., uh, and, and not, I think I mentioned white people in particular, but, but for many people mm-hmm. in the U.S., um, they don't come through heritage. And then, right. and then there's many folks who, you know, it's their family background and that's how they come to practice. But it, often those stories are a little different than like a crisis of suffering bringing one to practice. Yes, it is. So, you know, we do have this, the the tradition that, and I'm sort of using the shared tradition of this Zen, you know, your tradition is Japanese minus Korean. We had these lineage ancestors who came from their countries mm-hmm. to this country to share the Dharma. And uh, most of the people in the quantum school are not of Korean heritage. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't know what it's like, but my projection of San Francisco Zen Center and the sort of the, the Dharma tree that's been created, right, is not necessarily of Japanese heritage. And so I'm wondering if you could say a little bit about what, how you see this kind of experience of convert Buddhism and like what's our responsibility also with that as we're sort of moving forward, talking about the Dharma, where it comes from. Yeah. How do we honor the lineage? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, given our context uh, as being white Americans, both you and I, not all of the teachers are this way, but mm-hmm. you know, both you and I. Yeah, it's the constant question, <laughs> you know, <laughs> or, or it's maybe even better. It's like the art of um, contemporary practice is that engagement, that um, you know, the deep 
respect for the tradition and work and and wanting to uphold the traditions like like <laughs> for example like i'm wearing this hipari right like right now i'm wearing a, a japanese style uh, work top thing that that i wear when i'm not so formal <laughs> as a priest and, and i'm wearing a rakasu which is also japanese and because that's the convention that's sort of you know evolved in my sphere and uh and it's it's good to just always be pausing and looking at like well what what's there you know what's that about um actually it makes me (laughs) i hope this isn't too much of a digression but i'm actually remembering this this thing that is really crucial for me that in 10th grade at the sacred heart school um we were studying world religions and um the teacher said tomorrow a a buddhist is going to come in and i and now i'm so curious because i'm like i don't know what my image was of a Buddhist or, and I was very excited. So I don't know what I knew about Buddhism, but I knew enough to be like, this is going to be cool. And it's <laughs> going to be an Asian monk. I think I didn't articulate that in my head, but I certainly had that expectation so mm-hmm. that I, when I walked in the room and it was an older white guy with jeans on, I was like, what? <laughs> How disappointing. I was, first I was disappointed. Secondly, I was like, you poser. Like, <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. And and yeah. I which I which I just I often have the experience or not often. I've occasionally had the experience to speak to high school students about Buddhism and I'm like, let me just name I'm probably not the first I don't think I'm the first thing that comes to anyone's mind when they think Zen priest, you know, middle aged white American woman. <laughs> Maybe now a little bit. But um I and I was and I felt angry actually. I remember feeling like like how like how could this guy be Buddhist? Like he, how can you just take up somebody else's religion from another culture? Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't do a lot of deconstructing of that at the time, but I have since, you know. Um, and, and our high school aged daughter about a year ago turned to me one day and said, mom, how, how is you being a Zen priest, not cultural appropriation? And I was like, hmm. it is. <laughs> it's not, that's not all that it is. and threads of cultural appropriation are in there you know and my in some ways like i would say my life was saved by buddhist practice and buddhist practice doesn't belong to any one culture actually and i happen to practice in a tradition that has a lot of japanese cultural pieces in it um and the way that i think we take care of this is to never lose sight of that piece that um you know colonialism and cultural appropriation are part of the mind for myself anyway they're a part of the minds I've inherited, the way I look at things, that I can just take from other cultures what I want. Um, that's, that's not a conscious thing for me, but it is definitely a, a, like a long heritage, you know, not just from my family, but from the cultures I've lived in and have been raised in. So, yeah. And so, and so I think, um, and I, I come from a pretty, I think in terms of, American Zen Buddhist practice, a pretty traditional, in some ways, uh, I hear San Francisco Zen Center sometimes compared with the Vatican, right? Like, <laughs> it's not, <laughs> because there's not one centralized place. It's just a big place and a, a somewhat older place of convert Buddhist Zen. Um, and, and more formal, you know, I did a lot of formal training that's pretty formal, um, or as formal as it can get in the United States. And, and I love it, too. I can acknowledge that piece. Mm-hmm. It, it's, not, it's not that there's uh, an answer to how 
we find the balance between tradition and and um, contemporary American cultural realities and consciousness coming in. It's that we, for for myself, it's a it's a dynamic, ongoing effort, and that changes all the time. You know, like I love my Dharma name, this Dharma name that my teacher gave me, Dojin. It's really meaningful to me. But I had a conversation one time with a, a young man who is Asian American and about the pain he experiences about all these white people using these Japanese names because his his family had to change their names to be to assimilate. And it shaped mm. the way I saw the the like I, I no longer felt a kind of ignorant or, or like a I didn't simply feel entitled to use my Dharma name. And I love my Dharma name, you know, so I, it's not that I want to annihilate it from existence. But I don't want to feel like, well, I can use that if I want to without consequence. That may be, me using that may very well cause someone pain. It may very well cause someone Japanese or Japanese American to at least be like, what are you doing? Why are you calling yourself something Japanese? And, uh, and that could cause harm. So I use, I use the name somewhat and I have the consciousness there. And if I receive the feedback that's harmful, um, I'm open to doing that because, and I feel like that's how I can take care. If that makes sense. And then, you know, it's not just about the names, it's about on every level um, of ritual and practice and ceremony and forms. And, you know, do we chant in Japanese or English and, or Spanish <laughs> or, or another, you know, what, what language is needed? And yeah, so I feel like it's a, um, a constant and ongoing question. So, given all that you just shared, you are now a teacher. Um, yourself, you, 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 and your husband are the head priests at this uh, sangha up in California. People are coming to you, looking for guidance and uh, direction and support, teaching. And how are you, sort of, taking that whole journey that you've been on and? Along with, you know, I, I think there's this new consciousness that's appearing in a lot of the sanghas, which is, oh, we really need to start addressing some of the the race dynamic, the anti-race, the white supremacy. How are you weaving this into your teaching in a way that both is authentic for, you know, the context we're in, which is, you know, here we are in America and it needs to be part of the path of liberation because this is the you know to use um oh, what's his name the guy from sojourn jim wallace like he calls it the original sin oh. of america right like and i don't really believe in original sin but holy cow if there were one it does feel kind of like this great thing that we carry as people living in the united states so how do you Take this heritage tradition of liberation, which doesn't necessarily have an anti-racist lens on it, and and weave in the thing that's necessary for those of us who are living in this context, for your students and and you know for yourself. Um, in many ways, I would say, uh, be- because <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know that's unfair <laughs> no, of me. I'm sorry. Or just that name, like there's a. <laughs> Um, or maybe it's better to say like in every, in everywhere, it, this, um, 
the liberation practice. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, bodhisattva vows, I would say, in the United States would, would ideally never lose sight of the, I think original sin is, it's, it's certainly <laughs> so Christian. Uh, but it's it, a but powerful it, it concept. definitely means yeah. something that um, feels true to me. That the, the literal founding, you know, the United States, uh, and we, and in this, I mean, you know, the 1776 version, mm. not, not, you know, the mm. many, the many, many um, cultures and peoples that were here have been here for thousands of years. Right. So that, that, you know, the founding of the country as we know it now, the United States, uh, yeah, it, it was white supremacist in its inception, the whole concept, you know. Um, was to create space for white Europeans to ha- have, and all, and all, and the idea that it was there for the taking, actually, which is written in there, um, is right there is the erasure, you know, of the experience of of many mm-hmm. people of color, and particularly of Indigenous Americans and or people indigenous to this land. Um. So I do think, and and I think it weaves through um, every, or not, I think that <laughs> many scholars can point to you, point people to how that, the way of thinking of elevating white Europeanness um, weaves through and, and, that, and, and also actively pushing down um, people of color of, with, you know, in such a broad range, like anyone who's not white. Um, it just squeezes into every institution and every facet of of society. You know, there's no reason. Sometimes I people uh, say, "Well, what, do you you think that's true in Zen?" And um, for me, it's pretty easy to point to the San Francisco Zen Center is a good example. It was founded. So Suzuki Roshi was a Japanese teacher. He came to the United States to lead a Japanese and Japanese American congregation in San Francisco, and then. Uh, yeah. So, oh, really? I didn't realize that was his yeah, original intent. Uh, so oh, Cody, interesting. Okay. I think it was in, yeah. um, in San Francisco. It's still there, actually, that temple. And um, still a Japanese and Japanese-American kind of sangha and cultural center. And then these mostly white, not, not all white, um, but, but very American young people came, and they were super interested in meditation. And they wanted to kind of like, and as far as I understand it, because I know a number of these folks, they were had zero interest in the cultural aspects of what was going on at the Zen Center there or that, that congregation. And the folks that were originally part of that congregation were not excited for the most part about these kind of smelly hippies that um, just want to come and sit every day and, and weren't figuring out how to join, you know, line up with the cultural practices there. So San Francisco Zen Center was actually founded as a place that was culturally relevant for Americans, or for white Americans, actually, I think is more accurate. Um, many sanghas that, although they their original teachers may have been from Asia, were founded, and then and even the language, right? So, and then like now all the teachings in English, and now the chanting is in English and Jap- but both Japanese and English. Um, there's a whole there's a whole heritage of um, creating practice environments that are relevant for for people uh, whether they're white or not in dominant white in dominant American white culture. Um, 
it's just there. It's, and, and there's a way that, um, I feel like I don't even mean that as something negative. It's just neutrally what happened, you know, it was a culturally segregated space. And so unless, I think there's a feeling sometimes of like, well, we're we're nice people or we're good people. So there can't be racism there. (laughs) My experience in the United States is kind of in any sphere, educationally or in neighborhoods, you know, in stores, <laughs> in institutions, in hospitals, in religious places, unless there's an active effort to undo the training around white supremacy. And, and by that, I mean, you know, because some people think of white supremacy as like neo-Nazis. White supremacy is simply the elevation of whiteness, you know. And, and I think maybe that's becoming a term that people are comfortable with now. Um, like even that we you know, like when you say classical music, for example, it it points to European music, white European music. Um, to say that's classical is is a white supremacist act, right? Because it elevates whiteness. <laughs> um, anyway, of course, it's more complicated than that, and um, it wasn't that these things weren't meant to be harmful. They but they were meant to be divisive, you know even like that, even to create a center that's more relevant for Americans, it, it, it was meant to be separate, you know? And so there's a lot of work to be done <laughs> to um, look back again with a new lens, with, a, you know, instead of the story, I was raised with the story of like the goodness of America and the virtuousness and um, we're just a bunch of freedom loving pioneer kind of folks, you know? Um, and instead being like, yeah, some of that was there. And then also um, a lot of oppression, actually a tremendous amount of violence. In California, where I live now, that there was this deliberate genocide of the people indigenous to this land. It was state-sponsored. You know, it was like, it's written into the ground that our, my house is on, likely, and our Zen centers are on. And so we take this knowledge, and this is what I think practice really supports us in, is that pliancy to be moved and changed. And now look again at what's behind us, you know, like, how did we get here? And okay, well, what what, what were the pieces going on there that we were told we weren't supposed to look at, too? You know, for me, as a white person, I've been really acculturated, don't notice race, you know, that makes everyone so uncomfortable, or that's a racist, I've even been told that. Noticing race is racist. Um, and instead, hearing, you know, from people of color, like, please notice, please notice that, you know, race is a thing. <laughs> and now look back and, and re-notice everything with this lens of understanding. And now look forward um, with, that under, with that knowledge as well. Like, how do we, you know, which actually goes back, I don't know if it will be in the final cut but the, but it goes back to the responsibility for what happens when someone walks into the door of a dharma center how inclusive can we be you know on on every level um and the reason that matters is because people matter you know and people seeking dharma really matters and what we do and how we treat each other creates the world it actually makes our it makes this reality you know and so just Sort of that I actually really appreciate that in terms of I think sometimes we sit on the cushion thinking the cushion is where the work is in so many ways when really 
the work is like we sit on the cushion <laughs> so that when we get to the door and we're there to greet the person on the mm. door, we're ready to greet the person at the door. And so you mentioned the, I think you call it pliancy. Uh, like, how do you see the practice preparing us and, you know, opening us for this responsibility, this, you know, truly the vow? I think sometimes the vow is so abstract, but if it really is like who's coming to the door, um, like how does, how does the practice prepare us for the vow? Um, I think meditation practice, yeah, I think it, I, I think it is, you know, the work <laughs> in this, well, I think meditation practice is just a really, really profound practice, um, as a spiritual training. Um, so, and we, and in Zen, in Soto Zen, the school that I'm trained in, it gets so emphasized. And, uh, I think that can backfire in the sense of like, okay, there's nothing else to do but sit there and have personal liberation <laughs> or it can look that way. Um, so like, let's just chuck that one because I don't think it's so useful or, or it's hard. And then it's like, well, wait, how come everybody's talking about like saving all beings? And then that's what we're doing. But I think, I, I don't think I, I experienced meditation practice as this really, um, both like mental and physical and embodied training of showing up fully for what's here. I see it as a, a foundational way to challenge uh, duality or, or these, the separations that the mind creates. Because when we're just sitting there, and, uh, and it's, also, it's also a training, actually, in not being reactive, you know. So every time, if, we, if you sit every day, your body and mind is almost like being told by some part of you every day. I value sitting still and I value uh, noticing what's arising and not reacting right away. You know, it can seem very simple. Like I often sit in the morning and I, and I, and thoughts of like the stuff I have to do today likely will drift by, <laughs> but I don't jump up and write them down or mm -hmm. I don't, you know, I, there, so there's actually this training happening even in the nervous system that um, it, you don't have to immediately react. You can stay in the body and then actually return to the body, ground in the body. And those skills, um, I think, are, they sound so simple. And I think they're amazingly profound in, in impacting human behavior. So that when we get up as practitioners, as you're saying, like getting up and off the cushion, and then I, you know, somebody's in front of me and now they're upset about something. Can I breathe for a second? Can I feel my feet on the ground? Can I, am, I, am I fluent with the way I tend to respond when I'm overwhelmed or feeling defensive? Am I aware of those? Have I spent some time with those internal states? And then can I respond from a more skillful place that includes um, really showing up in the present? And, and in terms of actually, you know, just pointing to anti-racist practice or, or in terms of disrupting um, systems of karma and conditioning, if we're able to ground and show up in the present, we're able to make a choice about what we're going to do next. And meditation, I think, really supports us to do that. 
And when we're, when we're being choiceful, we can probably, you know, we can pull up our values. We can pull up the bodhisattva about. We can pull up the things that we care about. When we're just reacting, when, when our normal mode is to kind of be usually like, you know, at least an hour or two, a couple of days ahead of ourselves as we're moving or somewhere in the past and, and we are reactive, then that old conditioning, that early conditioning, you know, these the, the, uh, dualistic ways of thinking and um, unconscious biases we've inherited are more likely to just come flying out and shape what happens. You know? So I think, I think meditation um, is very powerful <laughs> and profound. And it's really helpful that there's all these neuroscientists who are doing, who are like, you know, they're showing you brain scans and being like, see, look, the prefrontal cortex stays online. <laughs> like you're not just um, in fight or flight mode all the time, or you have the possibility not to. And, and all of that just validates that, you know, for thousands of years, Buddhists have taught, do this practice so that you may possibly cause less harm in the world. And, and that's, I think, elementally why it gives us a chance to show up and, and, and be deliberate about what's next. You know? Thank you for listening to this episode of Sit, Breathe, Bow. I hope you found the conversation with Dojin Sarah Emerson encouraging and helpful for your practice. You can find out more by visiting the website for the Stone Creek Zen Center at stonecreekzencenter.org, and I'll include a link to the Zen Center in the show notes. A special thanks to our sponsor, the Quantum Online Sangha, Listeners of Sit, Breathe, Bow are invited to try a free month of training with the online Sangha. To access your free month, simply visit quantumzenonline.org and click on the free trial membership button on the homepage. And please consider subscribing and leaving a review of this podcast. It helps introduce us to new listeners. I am your host, Ian Whitemar, and I hope you'll join me again next week.